Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. It's a beautiful day here in Minnesota, and I can't wait till a little later this afternoon I get to go down the river with some friends. I hope you have wonderful plans for your day as well. I know our show today is going to be very informative. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. And I want to just let you know that we just launched our new website which is the first international collaborative dementia resource directory. So please check us out at www.alzheimerspeaks.com. From there, you can go to the resource directory where there are lots of ways that you can participate if you're an individual or if you're a business. Uh, Many things are free, such as great reads where there's books and newsletters and personal writings that you can submit and or you can go in and review fantastic flicks that has audios and videos and films, again, that you can go in and review or submit yourself. And if you're involved with a memory cafe or support group or have an event coming up, you can list those for free on the site as well. In addition, there are four fee ways to participate if you've got a business listing, and I'd be more than glad to talk to anybody about that. But back to the radio show here. What our purpose is is really to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and their care partners, empowering everyone to live purpose-filled lives. Our goal is to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real, everyday life stories of living with dementia. And it's our hope to teach people how to live with the disease, not as it. I'm so thrilled today to say that Rick Phelps, our channel expert, who has early onset dementia, is with us today. Rick was diagnosed in June of 2010, and he's the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is an absolutely fabulous support group for people with early memory loss, as well as their partners and business professionals and advocates that are caring for them. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm doing fine, Lori. How are you? Pretty good. I hear you have some exciting news. Do you want to share that really quickly with us before I introduce I, our our guest? I do, for sure. I took a road trip about a week ago and traveled cross-country and picked Sam up. I was out there for three or four days for training with him, and we flew back. We arrived home, uh, let's see, Monday, I think it was. Uh, no, it was Friday. We got home, and uh, he's just been excellent. He's... Uh, Everything I hope for and uh, more. It's uh, I'll uh, I'll update everyone on Memory People and of course on your show. But uh, he is home and 
and he knows it. It's it's just been fantastic. The, we've only had him three days, but it's it's fantastic. Oh, very exciting. I, you know, for me, I I knew that there were service dogs, but I, you know, I always associated those with people that were blind. I mean, that's probably the most common. I did not know that there were dementia service dogs. So I'm really excited to follow you on this journey and help educate others as to um, what what it's like and uh, to have Sam in your life and the differences that it's made. I also want to remind um, our listeners uh, that you can join our chat, um, either utilizing the chat box if you're listening on the Internet, or you can call in live to the show. And that number is 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. And then all you have to do is push one to go ahead and get into my waiting room. And um, we'd love to have you join the conversation. I want to introduce our guest today. And we're going to be talking about meeting you as best I can wherever you go. And um, Kaya Spinnin is, um, is, a, is a good friend of mine who I met uh, actually going to one of her her seminars. And Kai's mother has had dementia for the last five years of her life, and that experience brought her family very close. And she's going to share her journey with us along with some tips and techniques that she's found beneficial in building relationships with her mother. Uh, Kaya is a meditation instructor at Abbott Northwest Hospital, uh, the Penny George Institute, and also in the community. She's also a former adjunct professor in the Holistic Health Studies Master's Program at St. Catherine's University. How are you doing today, Kaya, and welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm doing fine, and I'm just delighted to uh, be on this program with you and Rick. And like you, I'm really excited to hear um, down the line what memory dogs, how they help people. I just... It makes me feel so grateful for our culture right now and, you know, how how much creativity is really going into helping all of us um, navigate life more easily when we've got memory loss. So, yeah. Wonderful. Well, can you tell uh, tell our audience a little bit about, you know, when did you first sense with your mother the onset of dementia? What was that like for you? Um, Can you tell us any symptoms or signs? Yeah, I, um, when you know when she first began to have trouble with memory, um, we uh, there are three of us children, and we noticed it in various ways. I remember uh, one time coming into her apartment, and her return checks were kind of all over um, one room on the floor, and she was trying to put them in in numerical order. And so she was sitting on the floor and had all these different piles and was, you know, confused about whether the numbers should be going up or down. And I remember that was one of the, for me, uh, most striking signs that things were really, really different and that if that was that hard for her, that I needed to take that in and understand what that meant for her and for all of us. Um, I think we saw that, too, when she would be, like, sorting her, you know, vitamin pills and um, the 
color-coded boxes and things just weren't that helpful anymore. And so um, the, uh, she'd have, uh, instead of, you know, one blue pill in each box for the week, all the blue pills were in Monday and all the purple pills were in Wednesday, that kind of thing. So um, with signs like that, I think that that those are the two remarkable ones that I remember in the beginning. Um, and I'm also, you know, getting ready to talk with you, Lori, this morning, um, been reflecting on how what we did is, I imagine what must happen for lots of people, um, with the early signs, we kids kept kind of gently correcting her, but sort of dismissing the implications because we didn't want to think that she wasn't going to be her same old self. And then we also did a lot to kind of attempt to pull her up to her old standards. So we, uh, the three kids would meet and we would try to devise ways that we could keep her being who she always had been. And she'd been a painter, so we did a lot of color coding, you know, directions for turning on the TV and things like that. And I realized that during that time, you know, there was a, a little bit of a separation going on. We children were meeting, talking about what we were noticing about mom, but mom was kind of out of that circle because we weren't sure what was going on and, and we didn't know how to talk to her about it and we were having, you know, a lot of strong emotions. So just reflecting on that, um, this gives me, you know, a lot of compassion for um, all of us as we go through memory loss, whether it's happening to us personally or whether we're some of the, the loved ones starting to notice things. And I wonder if, if either you or Rick want to comment on that, too. Rick, go ahead. Do you have any anything you want to add on? Well, everything Kaya said, I have... Uh... I've, I've lived through. Um, I know when I was first diagnosed, I had had memory problems for probably four or five years before that. And I found out that uh, when you are diagnosed, they, whoever they are, but they say that uh, you've probably had this disease up to 10 years before that. And, oh, nice. uh, well, that's, that's what I'm hearing. But it, it's very difficult uh, once you get a diagnosis to, uh, like you were saying with your mother, um, it, it's, You've got so many people in your family and so many friends and stuff, and, and everybody's got different ideas, and, it, and it's difficult to find the right path to take. And uh, I tell people all the time to make sure that they understand that the patient, no matter who they are, is on a routine, uh, always a routine, every day there's a routine. And if they don't know that, they need to find out what that routine is because uh, I have a daily routine, and it's very important that I stay on that routine. So it makes sure. it much easier caregiver, yeah. Oh, that makes makes, a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, routines are real important. My mom was great for making lists and just being, um, she was just so worried she was going to forget. And so that's how we, that was one of the ways that we noticed, or she didn't like change, she didn't like spontaneity anymore, and she had always been one that would kind of go with the flow. And that Uh, just didn't work anymore. Um, You know, she was... And and that came down even to, um, you know, the television that she watched. And I tell people this all the time. She used to watch Channel 4, and it was back in the day when they didn't change the programming every other week. And so you could really still have a routine. 
and and know what time of day it was by what was on TV. And I think that would be a lot more difficult nowadays compared to, you know, oh, yeah. 20, 30 years ago when uh, when she was having her problem. But that was, we, we could never figure out, was like, what's what channel for? You know, mm. but then we, in looking back, we saw, oh, it was how she told the time of day. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah, so all kinds of strategies people come up with, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for me the... Um, uh, moment I, I'd like to talk about next because it had a lot to do. I I I think it may be helpful to those of us in the position of um, giving uh, care. And so, um, really dramatic time for me was that you know I would come over to see my mom and I'd be kind of aghast because I'd come in and there'd be a huge pile of papers and I'd look at the pile and it had you know, a letter from last week, but then it, there were, then there were a couple of bills, and then there was a list that she had made, and then there was a letter from, you know, 10 years ago, and then there might be pictures from two summers ago, and then there'd be a letter from someone who, you know, had passed on maybe 20 years ago, all in one pile, this huge pile. So I would kind of groan silently and then sort the pile out into pictures and bills and letters and try to you know, collate the letters according to how old they were, put them in chronological order, and then, you know, pay the bills or whatever. And then I would, so a lot of my visiting time then was going to just making this pile, uh, sorting it out. Then I would feel really good. I'd accomplished something. I'd helped her and uh, chat a little bit, and then it would be time for me to leave. And then I'd come back the next week, and lo and behold, the same pile. You know, everything was back in one pile and, you know, more things, not all the same things, but the, the idea of just everything in one big pile. And so I um, did that sorting for, oh, I don't even know how long, maybe, you know, every week for, let's say, five or six times. And I would sort of dread going over and, you know, kind of like, oh, I'm going to have to sort that pile again. And then one day I realized, you know, this pile is just how it is now. <laughs> and, and why am I coming over here and sorting it instead of hanging out with this woman who I adore? So I, um, that was a big moment for me to realize, okay, there's certain things that she can't do anymore. There's certainly, you know, i got to find the bills and all that kind of stuff. But there are certain ways I'm trying to help that aren't helpful at all and actually what I want with this person is quality time. So that was a um, a big kind of aha moment for me. And when that happened, then I, um, I think soon after started to realize that the way I could love my mom the best was to allow her to become who she was becoming by keeping her safe, you know, paying the bills, um, and finding ways to feel connected and and to remind her of things that she loved and to, um, you know, it was kind of up to me to find some of the conversation pieces because it wasn't so easy for her anymore. And to also then release, to become aware of my sadness and my sense of desperation that my mother was changing so much, and to release that, to spend some time each day 
with myself and my feelings and just recognizing, oh, of course, this is one of the hardest things I'll have to do in my life, have a lot of empathy for myself, but do that kind of on my own time and then come to see her with, um, the you know, the best I could do, some days easy, some days not so easy, a sense of adventure that this person who birthed me and has cared for me for so long is now changing. We're always changing, but we don't often see that. But she's changing more dramatically, and I don't know where we're going. But what I want to do, instead of trying and wishing that she were who she used to be, I want to do my best to um, listen and watch closely enough to get a sense of where she is and then see if I can meet her where she is and get to know that new place and have a connection there. Um, So as that kind of dawned on me, a lot of other things changed for me then. And and, um, our communication then became much closer and nourishing. I think the nourishment going both ways because I wasn't trying to make her who she couldn't be anymore. I was right with her, you know, as best as as I could be, exploring this new world that she was becoming a part of. Wow, it's amazing when when that hits us, when we can't pull them back anymore. And it's a it's a battle that you can't win, um, and you just give into it. Yeah, yeah. And it takes you, I think, then from your head, so to speak, trying to devise, you know, now we could do this, and maybe she'd do that, or whatever. It takes you right into your heart. And so I found that these, um, you know, five years with my mother, that I learned so much about love, you know, ways that went way beyond Hallmark cards or whatever anyone had ever told me about love and just beautiful things. And I look back now, um, you know, eight years after she's gone, and and I just am so grateful because um, what we did together and the places we were able to meet and what that meant, again, my needing to let go of how I thought things should be, how I wanted them to be, and instead do my best to find her. There's a plane going over, so I'll wait a second. Um, Do my best to find her. That that uh, taught me so much about communicating and and loving and being with someone else. And uh, it has... You know, served me so well since then, and it's um, helped me to see a lot of little joys I wouldn't have been able to pick up before. Um, I guess one little story that comes to mind for that is one time we um, bought some new, you know, winter pajamas. We went shopping, bought some new winter pajamas, and we came back, and she tried them on, and then she was standing in front of a full-length mirror in the pajamas. And she was so excited about these pajamas. And, um, you know, the uh, part of me that wanted her to be my old mother who was in charge and kind of the one I could go to for help, that part was sad. But another part went, wow, I'm getting to see probably the thrill about life that came through her when she was five or six. 
that I mm-hmm. haven't seen since she's been my mom um, and been the adult when I was a kid. But, you know, there was something about this joy of the pajamas that was so delightful to her. And I, I was just grateful that I got to, to witness that. Well, that's neat. You're the first person who I've heard say that, and that's one of the biggest gifts that I've found is that, it, you know, I always say that my mom's taught me how to play again, and she's done that through letting me see that innocence in her. Um, yes. Because as adults, oh. we, we come with all of these rules and this baggage and this structure, and it truly is a gift to um, not not hold that anymore and to really enjoy the pajamas, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever oh. it is before you. <laughs> Um, with with just an innocence and, and a pleasure that we so often overlook that we just take for granted, and and to me that's that's been just so life changing for me, um, oh. and has added so much to my life. Um, oh yes, yeah, and I can tell that about you, and you could probably tell that about me too. That yeah, that we are able to be delighted by many things. Um, that other people might miss. And, again, I just attribute that to this journey with my mom. Yeah. Yeah, very, very neat. Um, Now, can you share with us, you know, I know you do some meditation and some mindfulness, and um, can you give some tips about, or maybe first of all explain what exactly is meditation? Because some people, I think it it scares them. They think it's really new age and doo-doo-doo-doo. Yeah, right. And, yeah, um, right. and to me, yeah. I, you know, it filled my life up in, in many ways. But I'd love an expert to just tell us what meditation is and then okay. how people could apply it. Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Because, again, as Lori has been saying, I think we had a chance to chat earlier, and both of us were just saying that um, with a, uh, an understanding of mindfulness meditation, we've been able to help help ourselves so much get through the, you know, really tough emotions that come with these kinds of changes. So mindfulness meditation um, is really about um, finding your um, center in the sense of it's just a, a very simple practice of being able to notice, okay, what are the thoughts coming up in me now? What are the feelings I have as I stand outside um, my dad's door, let's say, or my uncle's door before I go in? Um, what, what's, what's happening in my body? Do I have a, a knot in my belly or is my heart heavy? Noticing these things that are going on in each moment and being able to name them and then coming back to just sort of breathing, being with oneself, um, not judging oneself. So, like, let's say I'm outside my mom's door and I'm about to go in, and I've, I've the whole week has been filled with, you know, having to find all these forms for medical help and this and that and the other thing, and talk to people who were too busy, and I didn't have a chance to really step with my own work. So I'm standing outside her door and I'm kind of irritated, like, oh brother, what am I going to have to do? And when I go in there and I don't really have time and I didn't get this done or that done, if I, like, stop outside the door and I breathe and I just notice, oh, these are the thoughts that are coming up. 
okay, these are the feelings. And then I have a lot of empathy for myself. I go, oh, yeah, you know, it is really hard when I'm feeling overwhelmed by all I have to do, and yet I want to be here for this person I love. So I take a moment to just be very kind to myself, um, to understand how hard it is in this particular moment. And I breathe a little bit in just acknowledging that, how I'm feeling, what's hard about my life at this point, then it's kind of a release so that then when I open the door, I can be available to the present moment, which means right here in this moment, I am here with my mom wanting to have fun with her, to let her feel loved, to enjoy, you know, whatever it is that she's going to talk about that, um, you know, she may say, hey, get dressed, we're going to a dance at the Naval Academy. And here am I, you know, 55, and now if I let my imagination go, I can pretend I'm going to a ball at the Naval Academy. Hey, that never would have happened to me otherwise. That kind of thing. But if I come in the room not stopping to be with my thoughts and feelings and to not get mad at myself for them, but just say, oh, oh, these are the thoughts. Oh, feel that knot in my belly because I'm, I'm frightened by what's going to happen next. Once I can acknowledge that and then come in, then I can be really much freer to be available to whoever I'm with. So that's a kind of, um, I guess, a working example of what what mindfulness does. And it's really just a kind of simple um, way of paying attention to your inner world where you learn to let go of judging yourself. And just by paying attention and breathing a little more deeply and slowly, you are really helping your body and your mind get calmer. And once you're calmer, it's much easier to be kinder to yourself and kinder to other people. I think so, that that's uh, really um, important. That non, you know, that that acknowledgement, um, giving the space for those feelings to come in because they're not they're not good, they're not bad, they just are. And I don't know about most people, but but I have a really strong inner critic that can beat me up really bad. And, yeah. um, and smash me to the ground. And um, by acknowledging my feelings and just saying they're valid um, and just moving on, you know, and it, it just does a world of good because I don't listen to that inner critic going down this negative path. It's just something that I have to deal with and process. And, um, and, and the breathing, I mean, just even taking deep breaths, I don't know, how many people realize, because I think we take it for granted, our breathing, you know, it's just something that we do unconsciously. But if you actually stand and just take those deep breaths in, what it just physically does to your body, just taking, you know, five deep breaths in is incredible. Um, Because it's like a clearing house of just making you slow down and uh, and pay attention. I think with mindfulness too, it, it kind of gets into, you know, the whole thing about taking care of ourselves as caregivers or Absolutely. care partners. We don't do yes. that well, um, but yes. it's very important that we read our body and our mind and 
and our soul on what's going on within us because if we want to admit it or not, it will come across, you know, those feelings, no matter how deep they are stuffed. Um, on a nonverbal level, others are going to be able to, to pick up on that typically. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, I can tell you practice this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, and I think you're so right, Lori, about that inner critic. It's um, it's interesting because I, I just tell a little story around that. Um, mindfulness meditation uh, does have its base in Buddhism, and that might be why some people feel like it's... Um, you know, uh, out there on the edge or whatever. But I'd like to say that Buddhism itself does not consider itself to be a religion. It considers itself to be more of a philosophy of how can I be the kindest, uh, most clear-sighted person that's possible for me in my lifetime. And so um, Buddhists never try to uh, talk someone into converting from their religion to Buddhism. They feel like Buddhism is a good match for for any religion that person is practicing. If they are or if they're not, that's fine too. Um, but one of the the things that get back, gets back to what you were saying about the inner critic is that when some of the Buddhist teachers, including the Dalai Lama, have you know come to this country and um, spent time with Buddhist teachers here and heard stories about some of the questions their students have, the Dalai Lama. Um, had to spend a lot of time with his translator when the U.S. teachers started to talk about the kind of self-hatred and the meanness that was coming up. And then he actually was brought to tears because he had not encountered in um, in uh, the countries that he worked in before where there's not so much individualism. He had not encountered so much um, ju- self-judgment self-dismissal, dismissal, being hard on oneself. And um, when I heard that, that helped me understand, I think, you know, wonderful as our U.S. culture is, because it's competitive, because we're, you know, we want to kind of get to the top and be an individual and be known for who we are, it's often meant, you know, that even in kindergarten you're raising your hand, hoping you won't be called on when you don't know the answer, but you want credit. Uh, for the t- in the teacher's eyes for thinking that you do know the answer. So we start our kids off that young trying to look like they can handle everything. So that, when that's inside of us, then any mistake we make, like if you say something, you know, kind of meaner than you'd like to a parent because you've run out of patience, or if you've forgotten to pick up the medication or whatever, you know, whatever it might be because you're being rushed and this is a hard time for you and you've got many emotions, so easy to um, do things then that, that the inner critic considers a mistake, and then the inner critic can just be relentless. So mindfulness, I think one of its greatest gifts for people who are caregivers is that of helping us recognize, you know, there's kind of a tightening in the stomach usually, and, oh, oh I can almost feel my uh, spine tighten a little bit when I'm starting to criticize myself. And there's just a shrinking of my of my heart, too. So now I notice that shrinking, and I go, okay, I'm about to say something mean to myself. Well, as soon as I can recognize that, when I hear the words, they're not nearly as powerfully destructive to me as if I had just heard them and I believed them. This time I go, okay, 
I'm about to make a judgment, and I know that judgments are just um, much harsher than they need to be and that they don't really help me. So I'm a little bit safer from judgments, and that's a real benefit of this practice. Um, again, when one is in the you know, really intensely stressful situation of um, having someone that you love, um, you know, lose memory and not be able to be who they were before. Um, teaches us a lot of compassion for ourselves and, and for others. Um, one day, I remember with my mom, I, I came in, she was um, at a nursing home at that point, and they had evidently just had a little group about um, what's your hometown and tell us about your hometown. And my mom, Nancy, had grown up in the Navy, and so they were moving all the time. And so when I came in, she was almost crying, saying, Kaya, I don't have a hometown. And because of the mindfulness and because, again, I had made this decision to meet her wherever she was, you know, I went right there, and instead of saying, well, Mom, of course you do, or whatever, I just felt her sadness about not having a hometown and, you know, was able to just take her hand and just say, oh, that sounds so hard. Tell me a little bit more about that. And I think without mindfulness training, it wouldn't have been as easy for me to show up for her and then feel like, oh, I'd found this dear person in the, wherever she was. I wouldn't have been able to do that as easily. Yeah, and that that makes sense because I think um, you know to me one of the the biggest gifts of of the whole mindfulness thing is we actually can be person centered. We say we're person centered and we're caring for somebody and we're doing all the you know we've got the checklist that proves we're in control and yeah. <laughs> we're taking yeah. care of them. But we really do still have our own personal agenda that trumps them. Um, in in most cases, until you can get to this point where those are just tasks and the relationship really really takes over and and it's a, it's a weird it's a weird transition I know for myself um, you know looking back I, you know I really thought I was taking care of them that I was focused because that's how I was taught to do things was you know to be in control and to have a checklist and and um you know go after this myth of being perfect in terms of what you do but i was oh, so yeah. preoccupied with um the the myth of of perfect and being in control <laughs> that i i was out. missing out on what was really before me and right. that was kind of incredible oh. to realize oh i'm so glad you're saying that cuz i think yeah for any of us in this caregiving role just what you're saying, having the list, trying to do it right, trying to be perfect. Try to be perfect because you love this other person. And, you know, actually once we come in and are more available to our own inner life, we realize the loving the other person really gets to be about, you know, being there with them and not having to have everything on the list done. And so we get to have more choices. Sometimes you have to do the list. It's very important. But with mindfulness, um, and I'm sure there are other other kinds of practices that help people with this too, in this in a similar way. But mindfulness is the one that that we have as a reference point now. With mindfulness, um, you have more choices, um, and you can kind of 
tell inside yourself, okay, if I did go through the checklist and I got all that, those things accomplished, you know, part of me would feel like, phew, I got something done, that's good. But I also wouldn't have had that real heart connection. If I do the heart connection, I'll feel like I'm there for both of us and I'll need to go away then not having completed the checklist. And sometimes one will be the way to go, sometimes the other. But we're giving ourselves more choices. Um, now, we haven't heard from Rick for a while. Rick, would you like to comment on something here? We're kind of talking Hi, away. Okay, I wrote down, yeah, I wrote down some things here. I have to jot them down or I kind of lose uh, track. But I want to tell you that uh, I've spoke to hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the last six years about this disease Two of them, since I've been diagnosed, of course, I've done many symposium and speaking engagements. And uh, this disease, and it is a disease, it's a disease of the brain, it's much more than a memory deficit. I tell people that all the time so they don't get locked into this, it's a memory deficit thing. Okay, but good point. I, I, keep, I keep three lists in my head. When I talk to someone within the first 10 minutes of me speaking to them, I, I can tell they... The first list is they get it, and, and you are on that list. <laughs> I've spoken oh, to many people, and you definitely get it. And then I have a list of people that don't get it, and for whatever reason, they just don't. And then I have another list of people that never will get it, and, and, and that's just the way it is. Uh, some people have that mindset. But when you spoke of uh, your mom, living in your mom's world, that's absolutely crucial because I tell people that all the time. You have to live in my world because I cannot live in yours. I just can't do it. Um, this disease takes over your memory and, and everything that you do every day. Um, what works for me tomorrow or today may not work tomorrow, and what works for me this morning may not work for me this afternoon. It, it's just one of those things that people have to understand. I also tell people all the time, they say, well, what would you like to explain to me that thinks that would help a caregiver? And I said, for me, the most important thing that I want a caregiver to understand is that I don't understand, you know. I can tell them what I think and what I feel and things like that, but I've spoke to many, many neurologists and all this stuff, and I have no idea why um, this disease affects me the way it does. Some people say, well, you've got selective memory or whatever, you know, and that's not it at all. It's just, it is what it is. I, I have a hard time explaining it. I just uh, do the best I can and, 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 and try to tell people how I live with this disease as a patient. And I think that's very important because that's how caregivers will become better caregivers is to learn from uh, other patients. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, boy. Wow. Well, good. That was that was great. Um, I wanted to um, ask you, Kaya. Can you tell people, you know, how to meditate? Um, and and one thing I want to mention before you get there was kind of with this whole breathing thing. Um, that's been a tool for me, and I honestly can't remember if if you taught me this or it was somebody else, but um, they taught me to, you know, breathe in deeply, and when I breathe in, ask. Ask God or, or your God, whoever that is for you, um, what gifts you need to help you move forward. And then when you exhale, you are thinking about releasing all of that, which you no longer need to to burden yourself with. 
And so inhale, asking for help and gifts to help you move forward, and exhaling, um, releasing um, anything that you no longer need to carry inside of you. And that um, that has worked miracles for me in terms of letting me remove my fear and my anger and asking for assistance. And And I think the most powerful piece of that is really making me not feel alone because I think so many times when we get scared and overwhelmed, we feel alone. And it makes me connect. Um, You know, I I believe in God and and a higher power kind of as a a combination, kind of God and the universe as a whole, which, um, you know, everyone may not agree with, and that's perfectly fine. So, um, I say just kind of pray to whoever it is you believe in and um and and ask for that help, ask for that wisdom because that's that that's been just kind of life changing for me in terms of allowing me to calm down and get in control. Um if I'm way out if I'm way whacked out or if I'm just you know, knowing that I'm on the verge, <laughs> you know, of going down a path I don't want to go and my friends now all call me the calm one, and oh, and I really, I really attribute um, this technique in terms of helping me stay calm because when I'm calm, I can focus more, and like you said, I can see my options, and I don't take things as seriously. They don't have to just be done one way, or maybe they don't even have to be done at all, and um and so I, yeah, I definitely do the breathing thing before I, you know, would go into a meditation um, in and of itself. But can you explain people what what a meditation is and how would somebody do that or where would they go to find more information on it? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I, I think what you just described, Laurie, is so beautiful for, you know, for people who um, find prayer to be a, a real resource for them. That's a beautiful prayer and I wonder if you'd even maybe you, do you have it on your website or would you want to put no, it I up? No, I don't. I don't. Oh, that I, might be I a wonderful thing for you, the website. Okay. Okay. So, um, um, and then I'll just add to that a little bit with the, the meditation I teach. Um, we teach it often in hospitals so we, we don't have any particular spiritual language with it because someone in the class might be an atheist and someone else you know, might be a strong Baptist or whatever. So we're teaching it more as a a way to really calm the body and the mind. And then we say to people, if you have a spiritual direction that you want to go, then certainly add a prayer. That that's that's wonderful. Um, the so the basic instructions I give people are certainly in the beginning to find a place where you you will not be interrupted. You're not going to have to answer the phone. Hopefully you won't even hear it ring. TV's not on. No kids are going to come and talk to you. Just a a quiet place can be inside. It could be outside in your backyard, whatever. And sit in a comfortable position. It's it's, uh, good to be um, more or less upright in in a chair so it's easier to stay awake and all that. And then you can either close your eyes. Usually closing the eyes is easier for most of us um, than keeping them open. But if you feel more comfortable with your eyes open, that's fine too. And you just um, imagine that you can um, 
shift your attention from the outer world to the inner world, almost like the you know hands on a a dial on the oven or something where you're changing the temperature, you're turning something off to on. So you're shifting your attention from the outer world to the inner world. And then you notice the breath, which as Lori says, you know, we've been breathing since we were born and we'll breathe till we die. So we can kind of think, oh, what's the breath? But the breath can be a wonderful way for us to calm. And so I bring my attention to the breath and then I follow the breath in and out of the body. And I help myself do that by just noticing all the movements that my body naturally makes. You know, as I breathe in, my chest will get a little bit bigger, maybe my belly will rise, and then there'll be a slight pause. When I breathe out, my belly will uh, fall, the chest will get, um, the ribs will come back closer together, the breath will go out. And then I breathe in again, and I follow the breath in and out, and I might like listen to the sound of the breath or feel the air as it comes in through my nose. It's um, often recommended to just close your mouth and breathe in and out through the nose. And you you don't have to change your breath. You don't have to make it faster or slower. You're just with your breath. And if your mind is very active, it's often hard for the mind that's so used to accomplishing things to just follow the breath. So if my mind is very active, which it well might be when you're a busy caregiver, I just let it, the mind likes to report in. So I let it say to me, oh, now I'm breathing in. Mm, Out breath. In breath. Or I let myself count, you know, up to 10 breaths and then from 10 back to 1. What I'm trying to do and many different things, but one of the main things at this point is to get a break from the thinking mind that's always reviewing those lists, saying you got to do it better in the future. Um, make sure you do that. You know, the mind often, the mind feels it can serve its best by always being busy. And so psychologists now tell us that 95% of what we think about, we've already thought about before because the mind just keeps busy running things through it. But it's what the mind says, oh, I didn't do that right. Oh, I've got to get that done. That's what creates a lot of the anxiety in the body and in our feelings. So when I uh, move out of the mind and I'm just following the breath, I'm helping everything in me to just calm and relax. So I do that for... Oh, you know, in the beginning, you could do it for just two minutes if you like, but generally I, I do that for about ten minutes once, once you get going. And then I kind of say to myself, this is a, maybe preceding the prayer that Lori um, took us through, if you like to like to pray. Then I just say, okay, who am I today? You know, how am I doing right now? And then I'll notice, you know, something will clench in me. I'll go, oh, I really don't want her to be changing. Oh, I really don't. Or, boy, I blew it. I got so mad at that, you know, person at Medicare. I insulted them. So then maybe some shame will come up or whatever it is. But when I ask how I am, I get a chance then to see, you know, what it is that's kind of 
keeping me from feeling centered and calm. And then that's when I'm very kind to myself. I, I relax my tummy muscles so my belly is soft. And then it's much easier to be kinder to yourself when your belly's soft than when it's tight. And I just say, oh, you know, I, I can see that I wish I'd done it differently with the Medicare person. And I was too rushed. And so I, you know, hope in the future before I make a call like that, I'll remember to breathe, whatever. But I give, I talk to myself the way I would help my best friend, knowing that he or she is trying to do their best and that they're just overwhelmed. So I do that kind of checking in with myself, very kind to myself. And then I might, again, go to a prayer or whatever. Um, but just that clearing of the emotions then makes me able to go on with the checkoff list I've got or go in to visit this person that I love. And um, I, I want to tell you in a moment about how you can find out about this teaching, but I just also, um, while it's on my mind, I'd like to tell another little story if I can about mindfulness. And that is that I think for most of us, before we have some kind of inner life practice, we tend to, um, you know, stay around in the present moment when the going is good. But when things get tough, we tend to run away because it gets too hard. And I had a really poignant example of that with my mom. We were in a waiting room at, uh, at a hospital where she was waiting to see a, a doctor. And, um, you know, there were a lot of people in the waiting room. And then she looked at me and she said, I am so afraid that someday I'm going to look at you and I'm not going to know who you are. And when she said that, you know, she struck one of the greatest fears I had, one that I hardly could ever get myself to consider. And in that moment, I saw the options that came up. You know, one of them was there was a darling little kid walking across the floor just learning how to walk. And I knew I could say, Mom, look at that cute little kid. And because her memory was so fleeting, she would kind of forget about what she just said, and she'd get all excited about the little kid. And then I wouldn't have to deal with it either. But instead, because I wanted to stay so connected to her, and because this was something I was afraid of too, I took her hand and I said, Oh, Mom, I know, you know, I... I think about that, too, and it makes me kind of scared as well. And then we just sat in silence, letting that knowing that how hard it would be if one day she couldn't recognize me, letting us share that knowing. And as we did that, I found I felt much less afraid because we'd done that together. And I knew that if the day came when she could not recognize me, that because we had shared this together, I would be able to somehow hold us together, even if she didn't know who I was. So um, and that, being able to make the choice to stay there, I also attribute to a mindfulness meditation practice. And again, there are other ways that you know, we can help ourselves do that. But for me, that's um, that's what it was that was really helpful to me to, to be able to do that. 
so um, the course is being taught around the country. There, there are many different kinds of courses, but the one that I learned to teach um, was developed at the University of Massachusetts uh, in the Worcester Hospital. And um, it was taught originally in hospital settings, and the fellow who developed it went around to all the departments and said, send me any of your patients who are not responding to the um, you know, regular treatments you give them, and I will try this meditation with them. And so he found it was so successful because, of course, people were going through this, and this might be something that would be interesting for Rick, um, to, to learn about how to calm yourself and how to be more and more comfortable with time without thoughts, to find that to be the real haven that it can be, um, gave people, uh, you know, a sense of being much more in touch with themselves with whatever they went through and of being um, able to contribute, contribute to their healing instead of just coming in and expecting, you know, doctors and nurses to fix them as though they had no no ability themselves to help themselves. So the class started there, and it's, um, I'll give you a website in a moment of where people can find uh, information, and you may even have this uh, on your website, because I think we sent it to you before, or I can send it to you again if you don't. But the, the course that I'm teaching that I, I think is so successful, though again, I'm sure there are many other forms that are good too, is an eight-week class, and people meet one day or one evening a week for two and a half hours, and during that time, um, <clears throat> we do a certain kind of meditation, and there are little lectures, and there's lots of opportunity to ask questions. And after the meditation, for people to share, you know, what was hard, what was easy about it, um, to talk in small groups about how they're how they're helping themselves change their lives. And most people find the weekly sessions to be very relaxing in themselves. And then um, there's a a full day uh, retreat that um, is pretty much a full day, usually on a Saturday, when we put together a lot of our meditation skills, and it gives you a chance to see, you know, what is it like if I spend, you know, seven hours not doing any of my chores, not answering the phone, just really being with myself, being with myself when if I'm crabby, if I'm disappointed, if I'm jealous, if I'm happy. And our moods change a lot. And so usually in that one day you can get to see a little bit of yourself in <laughs> a lot of different situations. And um, then there's also a, um, you're during the course you're sent home with um, a CD so that you can practice every day. And there's a wonderful book as well. But we as teachers believe that it um, is the practice rather than reading a book that really makes mindfulness one one's own um, you know, practice. So, so Lori, did I? Um, do you already have the website, or should I just read it off to people? If you want to go ahead and read it off, and then what I do after the show is I always uh, do a blog article, and I'll have it there as well. And um, I think what I'll do is attach um, attach maybe the information that you gave me on that and uh, put that on the blog as well for people. But, yeah, go ahead and uh, state the, the website. That would be great. Okay. 
Okay, well, it's got the usual, you know, www. U, just the um, a letter U, UMass Med. So it's U M A S S M E D. UMass Med. Okay, so UMass Med. E D U. And then a forward slash. And then the capital initials M is in mother, B is in brother, S is in sister, R is in Rick. So M is in mother, B is in brother, S is in sister, R is in Rick. Um, slash public, it's a long one, slash search member. Um, and again, Lori will have it on the on the site. But that takes you to um, the website where they uh, talk about these classes, and it will get you a, a list then of um, centers that teach it. And so you can put in your state, your city, and you'll find out who teaches it um, in your area. Um, it's also Wonderful. called, you could, you could also Google um, mindfulness-based, so it's mindfulness hyphen Based, B A S E D, and then a new word, stress reduction. Because so much of what the mindfulness does, the way we teach it, is really focused on um, our relationship to stress and how we're going to reduce stress as we go through our daily lives. And stress we definitely have as caregivers. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about right. that. Uh, even if you've you've lost it for a day, it will return. Um, that's just life in general. The other thing I think is, um, you know, with all of this mindfulness and the meditation and just these little simple techniques, um, you know, you can use those throughout your day. And it doesn't have to just be regarding caregiving. I mean, it applies to everything that you do. And and people don't need to know that you're that you're doing this. Um, sometimes. Um, you know, I'll meditate in bed, you know, right before I go to sleep um, or right before I pop out of bed. I just kind of clear my head and do it. Um, other times I'll do it in my office and I, I'm just feeling really stressed out. And I have a little candle, a light, and I put on some some soft music that just kind of calms me. <clears throat> and I just take 10 or 20 minutes to myself and then I feel like I can go join the world again. <laughs> Oh, that's so, wonderful! Yeah, so yeah. that's uh, that's great, and um, yeah, so I highly recommend that. And I think, as Lori says, you don't have to tell other people that you're doing it, but then uh, don't be surprised if people say, "Gee, you seem so calm." <laughs> that will be that's the telltale sign. So, yeah. and then I'd like to just make one more comment. I realize it, it, our time is um, it's time for your next guest, but I just like to say. Um, I remember that, uh, you know, when I was going through this time with my mom, I was, it was so intense. And sometimes I would find the fear that I was only going to remember her, um, you know, at the end of her life when she seemed so different than she had been in, in the first part of her life. Though I must say I could always find her heart, and that was always so beautiful. But I, w I was afraid of that. And um, so what I'd like to say is that after she died, um, 
I the most of the memories that came to me were of the you know the end stages, and again I thought, oh, I want to be able to remember her, you know, when she was younger, when she was a scuba diver and a dancer and an artist and all that. But I also realized that I did not want to turn my back on the end stages either, because I loved this woman up till the very you know moment. I love her still. So I decided to let the memories do what they needed to do to kind of take the time they wanted to take to be with me. And so um, so for a long time, most of the memories I had were of the last year or so when she was so dependent on me and, and not a, you know able to do much on her own. But I felt in honoring those memories that that was a very delicate, special time between us. And then because I didn't try to push those away, I, I think this is what happened. I noticed that after they sort of felt received, those memories, that then they dwindled away. And now, um, you know, most of my memories are of her kind of at, throughout the life when I knew her, you know, as my, when I was a little kid on up to when I was an adult. And I have very many vivid memories of when she was um, able to do a, a lot of the things she wanted to do. And I also have the memories of, of the last years. But um, I was really glad that I didn't turn away from the memories of the last period of time, but I really let myself love her through that. And then the other memories, I, I just let the memories do what they wanted, and that felt like the right way to do it. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely, definitely. So you've, you've got those memories of the whole person. One of the things that um, Harry Urban, and he, he visits us quite a bit, and he's involved in the memory chat um, he he just said a brilliant statement that just totally resonated with me, and he said, you know, I don't want someone to miss me when I'm gone because that um, denotes a negative and a loss. I want to be remembered because that, you know, is is tied in with joy. And oh, I just absolutely. thought, what a, what a brilliant statement. Harry also is one that really enjoys his quiet time and sitting and meditating and just being peaceful. And um, he really advocates for people to understand that people with dementia are no different and they don't have to be scheduled all the time. Right. Um, they yeah, like they to have, relax yeah. too. And, and, and I could tell a real peace and, and calm from my own coming in and just looking out at the day and being able to watch the breeze move through the, the branches for a while or whatever and not not all the doing, you know, that there was uh, something really, really pleasing about being free of all that doing. Yeah. Oh, exactly. So, yeah. Well, Kaya, well, this has just been wonderful to have you have you with us today. And, again, people can get a hold of Kaya Steven, um via the, the website. And, again, I'll go ahead and post that on the blog, and there's a link on the, the radio show as well. But I thank you so much for all your time today. Rick, do you want to add anything? I sure would. I I, I uh, want to thank you, Kaya, for your insight. It's been wonderful being able to talk to you and listen to your story about your mother. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to Memory People. It's on Facebook, and it is a closed oh, site. Yeah. So oh, great. Yeah, I've written that down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've and, already and got my, oh, What's that? I just just gonna say I've already got a couple people in mind, Rick, who I know are gonna really 
uh, benefit from the support group you've got and the, and the memory people. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. Well, good. And uh, I will be coming to your website, and I hope we get a talk real soon. This has been a very okay. enlightening subject. Oh, great. Okay. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you two so much. And you both have a way of um, making it so relaxing. I just... Um, this is just a very enjoyable uh, conversation, and and uh, so thank you so much for your graciousness and your kindness. And, well, thank you, and you have a comfort. wonderful day. And I'm going to go ahead and pull our next guest in. Then okay, so you have great. you have a blessed and day. You too. I'll have fun thinking of you going down that river, Lori. So, okay, sounds okay. good. Afternoon. Thanks, okay. Alrighty, bye bye. Bye now. I want to um, introduce our next guest. We're going to be talking about dementia caregiving and some tips for su- surviving the journey. And our next guest has been kind of living and breathing this life for, for quite some time. Um, Joseph Ben-Smyhen, and I might be crucifying his name, and I totally apologize. I'll let you pronounce it there in just a second, Joe. Um, is the current founder and CEO of Boca Home Care Services, which is a non-medical home care um, nurse registry, and he's been doing that since 1998. He also has Boca Home Care, which is a, a Medicare certified agency since 2005, and he's the national president of the Private Care Association. Um, Joseph was born in Montreal in 1969, and he was diagnosed with spastic uh, cerebral palsy, and his parents were told that he would never walk. Um, As a bright young boy with a disability, he wanted to uh, attend his sister's school, and so with his parents' backing, Joseph was instrumental in having the Canadian law for mainstreaming children with disabilities changed in 1981. His father, whose mantra was education is freedom, encouraged him to move to the United States where the Americans with Disabilities Act would offer him greater opportunities. And in 1991, he got his Bachelor of Science degree, and a little bit later, uh, he earned his Master's degree in social work in 1995. He was well on his way to fulfilling his life, and he met his wife and now business partner, Lisa. They have four beautiful children, and they have a few different companies. And after working in um, working at Home Health uh, Corporation of America as a social worker, in 1998 they launched the United Elder Care Services, which was a private duty home health care company. And that success led to the planning of the Boca Home Care and the Medicare Certified Agency in 2003. The next year, uh, Joseph became the president of the Private Care Association in Florida, and in 2010, the president of the National Private Care Association. He also has recently formed uh, Florida Guardianship Corp., uh, which he is president and the court-appointed guardian. He sits on a various nonprofit boards and uh, does a lot of charitable endeavors. And remembering his father's words as his mantra, um, education is freedom, he has also established a scholarship fund in in his memory for students who otherwise would be unable to afford and complete their education. So welcome to the the show today, Joseph. How are you doing? 
I'm doing very well, and I, I must admit, Bowie, I think you probably got that bio from my mother. I mean, that was uh, <laughs> that's, that's a very significant piece. Thank you very much. Yes, and you have to say your last name because I know I crucified it, and I'm so sorry. No, you you, you did you did well. It's Ben Smean. Just ignore the H, and okay. then Ben Smean. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I'm I'm anxious to talk with you uh, to get some insight um, regarding uh, dementia and and how you work with it and, and tips and techniques that you've seen. But before we we launch into that side, I always like to ask: Have you been personally touched by a family or friend um, with dementia? So. Um, we've personally been touched. Um, my, my father-in-law um, ended up having dementia towards the end of his illness, within the last month, um, you know, that he was that he was alive. And and you know, we don't really know what the form of dementia was, was it vascular or otherwise. Um, so you 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 watch it, and again, we were we were the lucky ones, and I'll explain that in a minute. But we were the lucky ones because it was towards the end of his life, literally within the last month. Um, but you know, dementia is known as the the long goodbye, and so the, the difficult so the difficult component in in the workplace is that we watch many family members, many primary caregivers, uh, trying to do the best they can to care for their loved ones, and their loved ones don't remember them. So that's what we have to deal with professionally. But personally, I think I, I've been blessed. Um, that my only recollection is uh, my father-in-law's passing last year. Um, and so, towards the the last month, um, he, he had significant dementia. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. It always just kind of puts things into perspective in terms of where where you're coming from. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your experience in your business of of things that you've noticed with people when they're kind of struggling with memory loss, and maybe give us some some signs of normal aging versus not normal aging that you've run across where people have contacted you for support services? Sure. So every day in our life, you know, the older we get, um, my father used to say that, you know, once you reach the age of, uh, you know, 65, you need to, you need to be entirely entitled to another medication or another illness. Um, when, when people get older uh, in the aging process, so it's normal for them to forget maybe where they put their car keys, or it's maybe normal for them to forget they didn't put something on the calendar, which normally they would, they would not forget to do. The difference between forgetfulness and dementia is that forgetfulness becomes an isolated moment. Something happens, you get distracted, either because of something that's preoccupied on your mind um, versus um, dementia, which is a gradual process of of forgetfulness with different stages. And so what we see in, in our office um, within the home care agency, what we see is uh, the people, primary caregivers, a husband for a wife or a wife for a husband, they acknowledge, regretfully they acknowledge this this decline and they see it happen gradually. And that's, that's the biggest uh, component, I think, within the disease of, uh, of dementia, whether it's the Alzheimer's type or, or the vascular type, um, that's that's probably the two biggest differences that we that we see, um, and we and we deal with them accordingly. Um, if someone presents well, um, we don't necessarily remind them that they have, uh, you know, we don't say, Mrs. Jones, 
you're very forgetful. That's why Peggy Sue is here. Um, if they present well, we try to let them do as much as they can for themselves, acknowledging that the reason that they have standby assist or supervision of a home health aide is because uh, they're forgetful. Um, and when someone progresses in the dementia stage where they don't even present well anymore, uh, we had a client once who was convinced that they had a Jaguar park uh, in the garage downstairs. And we went with that. There's no way that this woman could drive, but that was what she believed. And there's no benefit. We train our, our caregivers. There's no benefit to tell her it's not true. Um, you know, and that's kind of what you have to try to do. It's easier for professionals to do it maybe than, than family members because they they intellectualize, you know, the honesty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a good point that a lot of times a, a professional caregiver doesn't have that history um, and they're not longing for this person to be back uh, in a different light um, the way that they used to be and there's not that loss. Um, that a that a family member might feel on that. So, yeah, definitely, definitely a difference there. And again, they can't change. Um, you know, as Rick had said. So, you know, don't don't force the issue of trying to make them join your world. Rick, did you want to add any comments to that? I uh, uh, welcome Joe to the show. I I wanted to say what he he says very important. I once again I tell people uh, all the time that tell me, they'll say, well, you know, I forget my wallet or I forget my keys and things like that. And this disease is much more than that. Uh, I explained to them, it's, I can have the keys to my Jeep in my hand or laying on the table and not sure what they're for. Um, that's how I try to explain things. It's, uh, it's a different, there's much more things going on with dementia than just forgetting something. It's, uh, it's a whole different ball game with, uh, with this disease, and I keep referring it to a disease more than a memory deficit. Uh, it's uh, it's just something that you deal with every day, all day long. Some some periods are, are better than others, but then you go through the the bad hours or bad days as well. Yeah. Now, now, Joe, I know you're a big advocate of crafting a care plan. Can you tell us exactly what you mean by a care plan and how do people go about um, developing one? Okay, so so the difference between a professional and and a family member, um, and I, even if a family member is a professional, they can be a physician, they can be an attorney, they can be a judge, they have professional skills. But then when it affects their own family member, uh, they more often than not, I'd say 100 out of 100 times, 100% of the time, uh, are not able to, to put their ideas on paper and then kind of execute slowly. What do I mean? If, it wasn't, if it's not an emotional detachment, uh, you know, they go home, they haven't seen mom or dad in six months, they, get, they, get, they come back, they, they come to Florida, let's use this as the example, and they see that dad's missed three doctor appointments uh, and he's never missed appointments before, um, and they they start screaming at Dad, and then they're like, "How did you miss these?" And Dad doesn't really know what to say, and so he goes, "It won't happen again. It won't happen again." What a care plan does it is it brings a professional, either a registered nurse or a, or a social worker, um, and it it conceptualizes, it puts in priority the presenting problem versus the actual need. If Dad missed three doctor appointments. That's the presenting problem. The actual need is that son who is a neurosurgeon in Minnesota, who lives in Minnesota, 
and dad believes that his independence is in Florida. So someone like us will create a plan and we'll say, okay, dad needs to go to the doctor Monday. Or dad's going dad's to have help at home <coughs> Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 15 hours a week. Right? So it is our business as a home health care provider to make sure that dad's doctor appointments are the times that he has caregivers. And why is that so important? Why is that our job? It's our job because that means that our care plan will work 100% of the time. Now, if a son or daughter did that, right, they would, dad would be able to say to them, I don't want to go. But if, if there's a caregiver in the home and we are able to put the caregiver there and make the doctor appointments while, while the caregiver's in the home, the person with dementia isn't going to have an objection to going. Remember, dad isn't going to the doctor, not because he feels better, but because he forgets to go. And he's not not going to go because he doesn't want to go. He just doesn't remember to go. Now, if you remind dad that he forgot to go, he's going to become argumentative because it's the last piece he can hold on to that says, I'm in charge here. So a care plan allows you to memorialize what you want done professionally without being intrusive into the other person who's going through the dementia process, um, you know, and that's assuming that dad lives by himself. A care plan is even better for the primary caregiver, the spouse, because now you've taken the uh, the difficult component and you've allowed them to enjoy their life together as husband and wife, and all the professional pieces, all the small pieces that if they don't connect the dots become big pieces or big blowouts are taken care of. So the care plan's purpose is to memorialize what needs to get done, and it has to be able to be fluid. Today's care plan is good for today. It's, it's you know, a short-term plan. Now, when you create a care plan, that's exactly what it is. It's a care plan, and you have to create either a short-term one or a long-term one. A long-term one has no end in sight. You, it, you just, there are goals for the future. The short-term one is the here and now. That's what we're going to do right now. And so I'm a big fan of those because, again, you're, just, you're, you're putting them together to kind of conceptualize everything that needs to happen as opposed to screaming at dad or screaming at mom, you know, how come you can't remember to go to the doctor? So, so that's why I'm a big fan of those. Okay. And, and I guess I would like to add in that, you know, having that third party can make a huge, huge difference. Um, or even if it sometimes it can be a doctor who orders, um, you know, this service in. So, and, and a lot of times people will take that more sternly going, okay, this is the doctor, you know, thinks that I need this versus my daughter's telling me I'm incompetent because that's how things are internalized a lot of a lot of times with the family dynamics. And uh and it also can allow that person with dementia uh to feel a sense of independence of being able to get something done without having to rely on on a loved one. And you know so, so there can be some big benefits to that and a lot of times I think people forget about that. Um in addition it can allow uh, the primary caregiver a little bit of respite as well, um, so maybe they can get away and do some other things that they need to do, or just go have fun and uh, and visit with some friends um, as well. So now, if you are um, going to the doctor with someone, um, 
are you, do you just get them there and they go into the doctor and bring a note home, or do you sit in on the appointment with them? So are you kind of a second set of eyes and ears to be able to communicate what transpired? So de- depending on the relationship, I, I will say this. Nine, nine out of ten referrals that we get, the person who needs the actual care who has dementia does not hire our services, okay? The, the biggest impediment to hiring our services are that someone who has dementia doesn't see why they need the help. And so you have to have someone else make that decision. The reason that's important is when someone has a doctor's appointment, another component of a care plan is to hire a geriatric care manager, right? We as a home health agency uh, are here to support the primary caregiver, the husband, the wife, the individual who does not have the dementia, right, and to find some hours of respite for them. That's, that's our primary purpose, right? Or our primary purpose is also for someone who's much more functioning, right, is to have someone live with the person to be able to help them remain at home. If someone needs to have someone go with them to the doctor, so most families start off with a caregiver, someone who they've had, you know, if if you had a caregiver because mom used to fall a lot, and now you have you've you've had the caregiver for a year in the home, and now mom is declining in her memory disturbance, right? So you've built a relationship with that caregiver, and that caregiver knows all of your doctor appointments, and sometimes that's enough. As long as as long as Peggy Sue, the caregiver, goes to the appointments and organizes the appointments, you're good to go. Sometimes. If you wait to have a caregiver in the home until someone has dementia, then the caregiver themselves may not be the resource you want, and so therefore you will hire a geriatric care manager, uh, basically a professional, either a nurse or a social worker or paraprofessional, to serve as your eyes and ears and to go to the doctor appointment with that. But people try that as a third option. First they get the home care, then they try to see if the, if the home care worker uh, is diligent enough or capable enough to, to follow the instructions to provide the, provide the instructions back and forth to the family, and if not, then they go ahead and, and they hire like a care manager. That's okay. kind of the process of how it works. Okay, so like when again, when you go to the doctor, is there? Because I think a lot of times it's just nice to have that second set of eyes and ears. Um, if family can't make it, are you that person that then takes that all in and and communicate yeah. that with the family? We we are that person, and we are that person, and I would say that it's 50% of the time they go only with the caregiver, and, they're ha- and, that's, and that works out well because the caregiver has built a relationship with that person, so the physician is very comfortable speaking to the caregiver, and the caregiver is very comfortable relaying the information. And then 50% of the other time, the, the other, you know, the other 100 uh, uh, patients or clients we have, Right, want someone who specifically has the mandate to to actually go to um, to the doctor, and that may be someone who's either a geriatric care manager or it's court appointed. You know, they want someone to actually go to the doctor with them. Uh, what's important to to understand is what you haven't addressed, which I I want to address for one second, is how do you get the person with dementia, right, either moderate or severe, to actually go to the doctor. That happens often. Right? Again, remember the scenario that I gave you. Right? 
my dad Walter, right, who forgot to go to the doctor, that was a scenario I gave you, right, who doesn't go to the doctor because he forgets, right, if you remind him that he forgets, he's not going to go to the doctor because it's his, his last hurrah, I'm going to show you that I'm in charge. So now you have to remind someone who made an appointment on Friday for a doctor's appointment on Monday, but Walter, you said on Friday you were going to go. They're going to adamantly tell you they're not going. So you have to become very, very creative, either put them in your car and take them or maybe find someone else to drive them so that they don't look at you as a sense of authority. That becomes very tricky to actually get them to the doctor. That is something that most people do not observe, and they get very, very frustrated just trying to get their loved one to the doctor. And that can usually happen much better through a a third party as a home health aide or professional care manager. Okay. Okay, great. Um, now, you you had talked about, you know, really being the support for the primary caregivers, be it a spouse or a son or a daughter um, or whatever. Um, can you tell people, I mean, everybody's always, especially nowadays, afraid of costs and so forth, and I'm just wondering if you can give a range of, of what what people can expect, and you don't have to talk specific in terms of yours, but... Um, just in general and, you know, time increments. I know that, you know, all companies are a little bit different. So what, if people are looking for this respite and want to pull something in, can you talk to us in terms of generalities? Sure. So so there's two things I would look at. Number one, we, and it may, it may sound self-serving, however you'll see in a moment that it's not only, not only is it not self-serving, but it's, it's the best way to go. We recommend, I as a guardian recommend, and whether it's using my company or, or someone else's company, um, if I if someone needs to be transported some somewhere, right? If you hire a transport company, they're going to charge you eighty dollars, forty dollars to go, forty dollars to come back, and all they're going to do is transport to that individual there and back. If you hire a caregiver at I'm going to make up a number, fifteen dollars an hour, which is a median of what it might cost um, in the state of Florida. Right, so if you if you hire someone at fifteen dollars an hour and you have them for four hours, right? So you've now paid sixty dollars, and they were able to help Walter get dressed. They were able to coach Walter to eat before he goes to the doctor. They were able to go to, with Walter to the doctor and actually to listen to what's being said. So I, I'm a big fan of hiring a caregiver for something as simple as transportation because you get much more for your for your, for your buck. Um, mm-hmm. it, I would I would say ten years ago, ten or twelve years ago, maybe forty percent, four out of every ten cases that came through our office had a long-term care insurance policy. I would say that today, I'd say eight out of ten, eight out of every case we have um, is covered by long-term care insurance. Long-term care insurance is a mechanism that pays for custodial care, Medicare and and your health insurance plan, even with the new you know, Affordable Care Act, does not cover custodial care. It covers skilled care. Skilled care is um, you know, like Medicare home health. It covers uh, sending a nurse, sending an occupational therapist, sending a physical therapist, sending something that the doctor orders to help you rehab because you either had a stroke or a heart attack or you broke your hip. That's covered by Medicare or your health insurance plan. Peggy Sue helping you go to the doctor or helping you get dressed, even though you need it because you just had a stroke, is not a covered expense. And that can range anywhere 
between, like I said, anywhere from $15 to $19 an hour and anywhere from 160 to 190 a day for live-in care. The beauty, I will say, it's one of the only within the pool of within the pool of independence, if you will, uh, home health care workers, right, under federal law, are not entitled to time and a half, right? And we're very conscious of that. We're very conscious of making sure not to force people to pay time and a half because we believe that caregivers have a choice whether or not they can work in a home care setting or a hospital or nursing home. So a caregiver can make time and a half in a, in a hospital or a nursing home, but in someone's home, there's an exemption. And why is that? So that Walter could live at home because their long-term care insurance policy will maximum will pay $200 a day. That's it. So, we, so that is why Congress created a, a suggestion that when people live at home, the notion of time and a half doesn't apply so people can maximize their independence. And we, we try to follow that. There are some home care companies that charge time and a half, but, but there's no reason for that because that would break the bank, and we're very, we're very uh, careful about that. Okay. Okay. Well, great. That's very, very helpful. Can you tell us some tips on how to hire um, a caregiver, either as a primary caregiver or just as a respite? Sure. So, so the most important thing to look at is the individual. Is the individual licensed, credentialed, and verified and screened? To deliver the care they're delivering for mom and dad. Many people make a huge mistake, um, and then they come to us after they've made that mistake, which is, oh, I'm going to go with ABC Home Care Company because they're look, they're, they screen all their, their all their employees. They're all employee, they're employee owned. I always like to tell people, don't worry about how they pay their taxes. Okay, worry about whether or not they're licensed to provide the care. In the state of Florida, Florida is very uh, conscious. Right, Florida makes a big deal about. I don't care if Peggy Sue is an independent contractor or an employee. I care that they're licensed, credentialed, verified, and screened to deliver hands-on care. So the most important thing is to make sure that they have a license behind their name, that the agency that you're using is licensed by the licensing board. Um, you know, I mean that is that is very very important. Um, and the reason for that is if the caregiver doesn't work out you have a recourse to find another caregiver. Um, the best way to find a caregiver, I, I still think today, is probably still the Internet, um, because you can do as much research as you'd like. Um, every home health company or nurse registry um, should, should make available to you their survey when they come in and, and the surveys are audited for the delivery service they deliver. Um, and again, just common sense. What makes you feel good when you speak to someone do they give you a sense of confidence? Do they give you a sense of confidence after you made the first phone call? And that's who you should go with. You don't really need to call three places. Um, it's really, it's really how you, your conversation on the other end of the phone and the questions that you've asked, have they been answered to your satisfaction? Okay. How, how do you know, um, you know, what services you even need? Because I would think a lot of people just, <laughs> they're not. They're not sure. They know that they need help, but they don't really even know what. Is there typically a free consultation that people do um, to really be able to sort through what's available? So for us, so for us, we someone calls us up. You know, they'll call up and they'll say, "I need help for my mother. She needs, you know, four hours a day, twice a week." 
right? We'll be like, okay, fine, and we'll and we'll start asking questions, and then we'll realize number one that mom has a long-term care insurance policy, and we'll say to them, look, if you want the payer to be a long-term care insurance policy, you know they're going to wonder what mom is doing the other five days if she only needs care twice a week. You might be right, right? But that's something to look for. We also do a, an assessment. If you have a good assessment in, in any profession, you can use it for later later on. So if we go to someone's home and they present well and they only need you know two days of care a week, and so that's fine. So that we know that most likely that that assessment is free, okay? Because you can't put someone in someone's home without seeing the entire environment. Right? And what we do in our office is we we keep that assessment, and, and more often than not either care increases or the person gets better and, and care decreases. Care normally, if someone starts off with two days a week, normally increases. If care is, starts off with seven days a week, it may decrease to five days a week if, if they get better. Now, in the, in the illness of dementia or the disease of dementia, right, especially the Alzheimer's type, it, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better, meaning more often than not, you're going to increase hours. If that's the case, and you know that going in, you want to make sure that you're, whoever you send them to someone home to do the, the the evaluation and the assessment is able to secure that should you need hours in the future, your assessment is going to be able to support that. Okay. Do you um, now? You also do guardianship. Can you kind of tell people a little bit about? Um, what exactly is a guardian, and how does it come into place, and when when should somebody consider sure. looking into guardianship? So, so my, my my favorite expression when it comes to guardianship, guardianship is a, as a as a result of the following: if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Guardianship is because family members are either afraid to bring up the issue of what's going to happen if I get sick, right, or they're not afraid to they're not afraid to bring it up, but they want to keep all family members happy, so they create a document that has five power of attorneys. Right? And so there's a competing interest in how do you take care of mom when she's sick. So either either you didn't bring it up or either you brought it up with a competing interest and so it gets thrown out in a court because one family member says, This is nonsense, I know how to care for mom best. And so when the courts have a conflict they hire a third party or they make you hire a third party. Um, and so, and that's when a guardianship, a guardianship is an alternative to everything else. It's the last choice. You try everything else. A judge will try everything else before they'll try guardianship. But guardianship happens more often than not because there's no plan in place and someone needs help. Either they need a peg tube, they need health care. Something's been going on with them and no one's been making a decision. So that's when a guardian is in place. The reason I'm a guardian is most of the people that refer to us trust us. And if you trust us with your entire life cycle, at some point there are going to be certain decisions that family members just don't want to make and they want a third party to make them. And so that is a service that we're able to offer without upsetting the the apple cart, and, and family members are very, very happy about that. Okay. Now, do you do you also help people kind of sort through just the the medical payment um, maze in terms of, you know, how do they get you paid for? You had mentioned long term insurance and and things. Is sure. That something? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, again, 
what what needs to be acknowledged is that that the, every every new beginning is difficult, and if you're doing a new beginning that's emotional, it's even that much harder. So what we always try to do in our office is we always try to find a payer source. If someone has an entitlement under Medicare, we're going to utilize that entitlement first, especially if they have Alzheimer's. Because Alzheimer's is a disease that is recognized not only by, by Medicare but by every health insurance plan. So that is the first the, the first uh, order of business for us is to acknowledge a, a, a payer source. Um, and once that happens, even though you go to the doctor, you're going to get, every time you go to the doctor, you're going to get an explanation of benefit. They're going to explain to you what they did. And people get nervous about this. So, yeah, we always try to put them in a file, put them in a binder, um, explain to people how they work. Again, the biggest, the earlier someone comes to us, the easier the process works. Most people, I will, I will I have to admit, most people come to us um, in the 11th hour. There has to be a crisis. You know, Dad's in the emergency room because he just, even though he doesn't, he hasn't had a license for two months, but we were afraid to take the car away from him, so he drove the car into the neighbor's garage, and so now he's in the hospital, and we don't know what to do, and that's kind of how we get called in. And we're able to resolve those too, but and those are those are ninety percent of what we get. No one, no one calls us when they're healthy. Um, mm-hmm. But but I'd like to remind people in the issue of dementia or Alzheimer's. They didn't get it overnight, so if you can be, I know, and I know it's hard. So I, I, I say this respectfully. If you could acknowledge it in advance, there are professionals like myself who are ready, willing, and able to help and to make the process that much easier. Yeah, well, and again, the the denial, um, it's you know, it's not going away. And if you can pull in help ahead of time, a lot of times, you know, you can do things to accommodate it, maybe slow it down, and and uh, change your environment, uh, change routines, pull in support. Um, they can make life <clears throat> easier and not so frustrating um, for, for not only you as a caregiver, um, but also the person with dementia because they're feeling that angst as well. And uh, so I think, you know, having the conversation about memory loss, um, we really have to learn as a society to remove the stigmas that are attached to it because I think that's why people you know, push it aside. It's just too scary. Um, just too scary. I will say this also in, ter- in terms of resources. Just because you keep us in your back pocket, just because you've called us and you've made a connection with us, right, doesn't mean you have to use us. But you should know, mm-hmm. and I, when I say us, I'm, I'm speaking generic terms. Just because you call a, a, a reputable home health agency or a credentialed uh, geriatric care manager does not mean you have to use them. But but go find someone that you, I mean, you, you see the illness, even though it's hard for you to accept the illness, at least have a surrogate family member who's a professional be able to walk you through it. Most, you should know, that if I were to do a scientific study, I would be able to prove that most of the people who call us for care management or guardianship right, are, are children who have no siblings. They're, they're on their own. Okay? And that's very telling. So my advice to people who even have siblings who are dealing with the dementia process is find someone like a Joseph in advance. You don't have to hire us. You don't have to use us. But find us in advance so that we can work through it as the stages happen. And, and that, that's probably the best advice I can give you, the resource. Okay. What about do you run across many people who live alone that have dementia? 
Yes. Yes. Now, it's interesting. When they live alone, but their families are involved, so it's, it's, it's less noticeable. I mean, of course, we know that they live alone, but having a live-in caregiver works because, you, because we put in, we place the live-in caregiver, so there's a reduction in cost, right? If you're paying hourly for care versus paying one lump sum as a live-in, right, you're saving, you're saving significant dollars. That works very well as long as surely the daughter calls mom every day and says, Mom, how are you? So that makes mom remember that Shirley exists, and everything is kind of much calmer in the home. So it doesn't bother mom that Peggy Sue, the caregiver, is there. If, if mom doesn't hear from, the, from her children, that everything becomes a big deal. My children never call. Why didn't you call me? Even though Shirley may have called yesterday, and that's just something part of the disease process, you don't say, yes, mom, I called you. You have to say, mom, I called you. I'm sorry you don't remember. Um, how are you doing? And you change the conversation. But if, if, if the mom gets a phone call from a family member, then the live-in process works much better. If family members are not involved and the person literally lives alone and has dementia, um, then more often than not, we become the home health care provider as well as the care manager or, or the guardian because there's so many things that we have to do uh, to make it work. Right. Okay. What are what are your thoughts on support groups for both a person with dementia and uh, and caregivers? And they're excellent. There's no re- I mean, you you cannot you should not you cannot. Let me rephrase that. You should not, and there's no reason to navigate uh, the Alzheimer's disease process by yourself. You're not the only one going through it. Um, it's just not true. It's a it's an illness. That, that can literally, it's the long goodbye. It's the, it's the long goodbye. And so, um, you know, you can contact um, your, your local Alzheimer's Association chapter. I mean, there are plenty of hospitals have support groups. Uh, again, the Internet is, a, is an excellent tool. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of talking about the issue with others who are in a similar circumstance. Okay. Great. Um now, as far as, um, you know, have you ever run into um, problems where, you know, you say, okay, we just can't handle this anymore. This needs, this needs uh, you know, something else. Um, have, have you ever run into that situation with a client where you need to pass on services or you just feel you're not a good fit? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It doesn't. It's, I mean, you made it sound relatively simple. It doesn't normally happen that way. What happens is um, family members will come to us in much later stages, and they really want to try to have the individual stay at home with help. And cost isn't even the issue. They're willing to pay for two 12-hour shifts at $18 an hour. It's not the issue. But they have a resentment that if, I, if dad goes into a facility, even assisted living, with some kind of, uh, you know, lockdown unit or, or closed unit or secured unit, somehow they've let mom or dad down. So they'll try custodial care at home, right? And it just doesn't work because they began the process too late. Dad's dementia was in the severe stages, right? And so it doesn't work because because he's extremely combative and 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 uh, it just it just doesn't work. So when when that happens. Well, I sit down with the family. You know, by profession, I am a trained social worker. I'll sit down with family members and go, look, I make money if dad stays home. 
this plan doesn't work. That's what we've seen more of than anything else. In terms of caregivers, no, we can, for the most part, if someone comes, starts getting home care in advance, you know, we might have to swap out a caregiver here or there because of personality conflicts. But usually, when something doesn't work, it's because we've tried it too late. But I will let, But you should know that my personality, based on the bio that you've read, my personality is that I bet on people a hundred out of a hundred times. If a family comes to me and says, "This is what I want to try," then I'm all in, and this is what we're trying. Uh, but I may, again, I'm the professional one. So from an intellectual point of view, I'm able to separate when it's working or when it's not. Um, and I think most professionals who understand the disease process will, will, will do the same thing. They'll, they'll, they'll give you as much room as they can, but they'll make sure that you don't get in trouble by having someone at home who doesn't belong at home. Okay. Um, well, and that's a, that's a good thing to know because I think sometimes people are just worried that, um, you know, even if it's not working, they don't know what else to do and it just kind of continues on and, um, you know, being able to have those other other resources and things. Do um, you do much with well, what um, I like to, tech? Lori, what mm-hmm. I like to tell people, which is very important, what I like to tell people, which is very, very important, if let's say somebody moved into assisted living, you're changing their address. You're not changing your responsibility as a son or a daughter. It's still your responsibility to go there, visit them, take them to dinner, take them to breakfast, take them to your child recital, whatever you would normally do when they were at home, you're just changing the address because the building is able to protect them better than if they lived at home. So that's very, very important. And I think when you when you explain it that way, then people see that they have more options. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, do you um, use much for gadgets or technology in terms of your, your home care? There's so many different things that are out there, uh, they say, that, to help make care easier. Do you, do you have any recommendations for people? Or so, so in general, one of the things I think that we're most concerned with when it comes to people with dementia is medication reminders and uh, making sure that um, they, that they maintain their weight. And why weight? Weight is a, when someone elderly uh, gains weight, it's not food intake, okay? Because remember, they're forgetting to eat. It's what they're eating. So if they're eating a lot of salt products, right, so they're, they're retaining much more fluid in the body. So if we notice that someone gains one or two pounds, we have concerns with congestive heart failure. We have a, a, a device in our office that we hook up to someone's home telephone, and we're able to weigh them. They're able to weigh themselves, and it reads the information to us in terms of how their blood pressure is, how much they weigh, um, and that doesn't cost them anything. But what it tells us is we don't have to have a nurse in the home 24 hours a day. We can have the caregiver, but we're able to read from a skilled perspective right, how they're doing. So those, that's a gadget that we like a lot, and we're able to notify the doctor what's going on based on the information that we get. There are other things like, like baby monitors that you could buy or, you know, like Toys R Us so that you can hear what's going on from one room to another. Um, the, the gadgets are, have to be user-friendly to the individual. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the best way I can explain it. Uh, should, you know, is the gadget for the, for the, um, for the primary caregiver? Was it for the individual who has dementia? For the primary caregiver, um, the, the, the 
the primary caregiver should have, you know, they they can have a cell phone for them, right? But if if the if a person with dementia doesn't know how to how to answer the phone, that's not going to do them any good. Um, what I like to use is your regular medical alert response button. But I like to use the medical alert response button that when you push the button, an actual voice comes into the home or the apartment. Mr. Jones, are you okay? Right? And what's the worst that all happen? It was pushed by mistake? Okay, but if Mr. Jones doesn't know how to articulate a conversation, they'll know to send someone in, into the home. So those are the small things that I that I like a lot, um, and I find them to work. Okay. Well, great. Well, this has been very, um, very informative. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us at all? Uh, again, the the best advice I could give, um, regardless of what part of the industry you're calling me about, whether it's guardianship, home care, care management, is that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Um, it, it's it's very difficult uh, to be emotionally attached to this very long disease process uh, without having somebody, a surrogate family member with knowledge. And that's what someone like myself or, or my colleagues who are professional in this field do. We are able to provide care for the surrogate as a surrogate brother or sister for family members. And that, that's normally what happens. It's very few times that the actual uh, primary caregiver will call us directly and, and hire the services. So for the listeners out there, I would say that I'm really speaking to the sons or daughters whereby I end up serving as a surrogate family member to them to create a care plan. Okay, great. And, um, Joseph, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you if they have any questions? or? So, so there's two ways. So our, our website is Boca Home Care Services dot com and our toll free number which works throughout North America is one eight seven 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 zero six zero seven eight five and you can ask for anyone in our office um, you can ask for me you can ask for Sherry you can ask for anyone in our office we'll be glad to speak with anyone who calls um, that's probably the best way our toll free number which is on our website you know, www.bocahomecareservices.com or again, one eight seven 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 zero six zero seven eight five. And we're literally, um, you know, our, our, we're open seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So the building may close at 5.30, but we have two people on call uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and Joseph, if people are looking for um, home care but it might not be in your area, um, who do they suggest? Uh, who do you suggest that they call, or is that something they could still contact you and you could refer them out? Well, again, again, I would. I, it sounds it sounds uh, trite, but I, the internet's probably the best. You know, the best way to go. I mean, if you if you Google Boca Home Care, uh, um, you know, Boca Home Care, Boca Home Care Services on on the web, right? We come up first in Boca Raton, right? Um, and not because of not not because we've paid for an ad, but because you know that people look us up all the time. So it's and the more people look you up, the higher you 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 rank and where, where it comes up. Have that being said, I would say the I would say the internet is the best way to go. But the second one is your physician or your discharge planner in the hospital. They know who they use all the time. Your doctor, your primary care physician, your neurologist. They will have 
these preference. Um, if you don't know where else to turn, you should go there. Of course, you can call me, and I'll, and I'll, you know, I'm the national president. I will find someone within your state. I guarantee it. Okay. Well, wonderful. Well, I thank you so much for your time again, and we've been visiting with Joseph Bensman with Boca Home uh, Healthcare. So thank you again so much for your time today. I'm going to go ahead and close Pleasure. up the show and just remind people that, uh, you know, if you enjoyed the show today, please like us, and uh, you can also email the episode to any friends or colleagues that you think it might be helpful to. And if you've got a Twitter account, we always appreciate a tweet. Uh, we're a little grassroots effort here, just trying to get information and knowledge out to help those dealing with uh, with dementia. Our upcoming shows, uh, we've got on the 28th, Vicki Kind is going to be with us, and she is absolutely phenomenal. And we're going to talk about ethical issues that people face um, with dementia and illness. And then Joe Patakny is going to be with us, and he actually has dementia. On the 29th, I have Dawn Fields, and she is going to be with us, and she's talking about a new film um, that she's produced called Shattered Love, um, which is uh, a pretty pretty amazing little um, script. I've read it, and um, we've got several other shows coming. Uh, you can you can check the website for upcoming shows, but we are full of lots of good information for you. On the 30th, I do want to mention uh, Holly Schmidt with Alzheimer's Best. She's got all kinds of tools and products um, that might be able to assist you. Um, too. So if you're thinking that, hey, you know what, I've got an idea or I might be a good guest for a show, please reach out and contact me. You know, the easiest way to do that is just go to the website, alzheimersspeaks.com, and alzheimers is plural as is speaks.com, and shoot me an email. As you know here, I interview people that actually have dementia as well as personal and professional uh, care care partners, and advocates, Um, anyone who has a voice uh, that wants to be heard, I would love to, love to talk to you. As always, keep in mind the three things to focus on, which will make your dementia care uh, much easier to deliver, and that is the philosophy of your memory chip, which is, are they safe, are they happy, and are they pain-free? And you can get your dementia chip and other tools at the um, Collaborative International Alzheimer's Resource Directory. So until next time, have a blessed day, and I look forward to chatting with you all really soon. Thank you again so much. Goodbye now. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebastian, host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.